We're going to be looking at the two passages that uh, we're going to be looking at two passages that Chris read today. So, if you'd like to be prepared to turn there, that's Luke one and Philippians chapter two. Um, I understand that we're scheduled to have Bible study this evening. Where's Chris at? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, I wanted to just let you know uh, we're studying the book of Revelation, and tonight. Um, for those who might be interested, I know that you've probably heard, uh, because the media and movies uh, make this big, you've probably heard of what's called the mark of the beast. And many times I've been asked, you know, what's the mark of the beast? What's the mark of the beast? What's the mark of the beast? Well, tonight we're not talking about the mark of the beast, okay? Uh, and uh, that's coming. That, that is going to come. But what I do want to say is this. The, the very fact that we constantly ask that question is that we're more influenced by the media than we are by the Bible because when you get to the book of Revelation, and I sometimes play, I guess, the devil's advocate, I'll say, uh, before we talk about the mark of the beast, can, you want to talk about the mark of God? And they're like, what? Well, Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 7 talks of the mark of God, and the mark of God is way more important than the mark of the beast, okay? And if you have the mark of God, you'll never get the mark of the beast, and the mark of God is what's extremely important. And Revelation chapter 7 is a beautiful chapter of triumph and glory, and so anyway, if you want to come out tonight and hear about the mark of God, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful section. What is that? What does that mean? What does that look like in the life of the Christian? That's what we're going to look at tonight. In Bible study. Let's pray together before we study God's word. Father, we praise you, we thank you, we delight in you, we glorify you, we love this season as we can sort of think about and reflect and focus and learn about this amazing thing that you, you sent your son and your son came. Father, we love your son, we love everything that he has done for us, we love you for sending your son. And we pray that you'll just enrich us now this morning. You'll help us to be richer and to understand more, more deeply and, and with a, a lighter heart and, and more joy and even more, more peace and calmness in our lives. Just learning about who your son is and what he did and what this all means. So please give us grace. Please help us now. Please be our teacher through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. If you look in Luke chapter 1, a very important angel shows up, and he's very excited. And uh, I just love this, this whole thing. It, it, of course, in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, uh, the angel Gabriel, he's, he's one of the few angels in the Bible that's actually named Gabriel, was sent by God to a city of, Na of Galilee named Nazareth, which was a very little village that had a very bad reputation, by the way. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, uh, and so this, this very important angel, in fact, he's such an important angel that he had already visited Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, and when Zacharias was kind of pushing back a little bit on how can me and old Elizabeth have a child and all that kind of stuff, look at verse 19. It says, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Like he didn't even answer his question. He just said, well, the answer to your question is who am I? I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you these good tidings, these glad tidings. In other words, Zacharias, you need to just understand who I am and what my job is. I am a uniquely chosen, specially privileged angel who actually stands in the very presence of God himself. I'm not out there with the legions of other angels out there, the myriads upon myriads who aren't close to the throne. I'm in the very center. I'm in the oval office, as it were, with the Father, and I'm sent to do his messages, and I have been sent straight from him to you. And now he's been sent to this little town of Nazareth, and he's been sent to this very young woman, uh, verse 27, to a virgin uh, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And betrothal back then took place between the ages of 12 and 16 or something like that. This was a young teenager who is engaged, as it were. She's, she's not married yet, but she's engaged to this man, Joseph. 
And uh, the virgin's name was Mary. And notice what this angel does. It says in verse 28, and when he came in, the angel said, rejoice, rejoice. Now, we actually don't say that anymore, okay? Like, I don't, I was trying to think, is there ever a time when I said, rejoice? I, I probably don't do that. We don't, that's just not what we do anymore. Uh, we have other ways of doing it when we want to just say to somebody, wow, like, whoa, this is amazing, or I've got great news, or, like, I don't say, Jan, rejoice! I don't do that. I'll say, hey, Jan, guess what? Yippee! Hey, wow! I got great news. That's kind of what he's, that's definitely what he's doing here, okay? And so look at verse 28. Rejoice, highly favored one. And the word actually there is grace. Rejoice, graced one. One who has just had a, a, a mountain load of grace dumped right upon you. The Lord is with you. You are so blessed of all the women on the earth. You're the most blessed in this sense because of what is just about to happen to you. Now, that's actually not the normal way that angels approach people. Because normally when angels approach people, you have to, they need to calm people down because angels just freak you out. They, like, are just scary. Like, if you were just, you know, in your garage and you were working, you were changing over your car, and an angel just appeared and the garage all lit up and you can even feel the glow and there's this being right there and he's so big, he's bumping his head off the ceiling and he's an angel and he's just amazing. He's not going to say, hey, so what, uh, what great oil are you using there? He, that's not going to happen. Oh, I've got a 10W40 here. That's not going to happen, okay? You're going to be on the ground. You're going to be shaking. Wrenches are going to be flying everywhere and he's going to have to calm you down. And that's what angels normally do. Look at verse 13. And the angel said to, uh, so, well, look at verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias. He's standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and he fell on his And the angel said to him, do not be afraid. That's what angels are supposed to do. Do not be afraid. But Gabriel is so excited, he walks in there and says, God, I got you, Mary. I got great news for you, Mary. You are so blessed. Grace has been poured out upon you. I just came from God. I have this amazing announcement. And Mary is just totally freaked out. Verse 29, look at what it says. But when she saw him, she was troubled in his saying and considered what manner of greeting was this. And then the angel said to her, he kind of gets his composure. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, wait, don't be afraid, Mary. I'm sorry. I, I should have led with that. Uh, you have really been graced by God. God has really poured out his grace upon you. And so he's very, very excited. And what he tells her is what he's so excited about. And notice what he says. He says, verse 31, for behold, you will conceive in your womb. You haven't conceived yet. You're a virgin, and you have not. You, you don't have a baby in your womb. You, you've never been with a man. You don't have a baby. Uh, but you will have a baby in your womb. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, at that point, everything is, 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 could be very natural because she says, well, how can this happen because I haven't you know, you've slept with Joseph yet and all that kind of thing. You know, but okay, I will. I'm going to have a baby, and we'll name him Jesus, and we're going to have a boy. You told us anything before. We know what to do with the nursery now. Everything's cool. But that's not what hap is happening here, because look at verse 32. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. Now, clearly, she understood what that meant, the son of God himself, which he's going to say in a few minutes, a few seconds later already, next. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He is going to sit on the Davidic throne. She immediately understands that that's Messiah. She immediately understands that that is the promised worldwide ruler that God has promised is going to come and sit on David's throne. And he goes on, verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, we're getting well beyond what mere human flesh could be about, aren't we? This is a king who is going to be a forever king. He will have a kingdom that will reign forever and ever and ever, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And then she says, well, how can this be? I don't know. Man, how can I conceive? And then he says in verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you, and also that holy one who will be, is to be born, will be called the Son of God. And so you have this baby who is going to be the son of Mary. He's going to come out of the womb a boy. He's going to have the name Jesus, which was a common name back then, actually. He was going to be named Jesus. 
And yet he's also going to be the son of the highest. He's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And he's going to actually also bear the title son of God. This is a uniquely amazing person. And he's announcing this to Mary. Now let me, let's pause here. At this point in the story, where's Jesus? At this point in the story, where's Jesus? And see, I think in order to appreciate, and what I've been try, what I tried to do with my earlier sermon on this, having to do it, if you'll remember, was about how God sent his son, the plan that God had, and how that plan came from the deep reservoir of God's grace. Now, we're here to this moment where the angel says, you don't have a baby yet, you don't have anything conceived in your womb yet, you're going to have one. And it's going to be miraculous. And Joseph's not going to be involved in this. And, and this baby is going to be the son of God. I want us to understand and appreciate this. And the way I want to do it this morning is I want us to step back and look at the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus. And look at what he actually gave up to enter into that womb and to become a man. Uh, so let's begin. I'd like you to begin. Put your sort of theological thinking cap on at this point. And I would like you to begin to think about what's called the pre-incarnation glory of Christ. Now, let, let, let me define those words first of all. Pre-incarnation. What is incarnation? Incarnation, the word incarnation, has stuck in the middle of it the word carne. Carne. And carne is a Latin word for flesh. For flesh. For flesh and blood. For warm, warm bones and muscles and such, carne, it's, it's, it's what it means to be in, you know, enfleshed, as it were. And so incarnation, we, we use that word, uh, carnivore, for instance. A carnivore has carne in it. It's somebody who vores carne. He eats meat. It's a meat eater. That's what that word means. A carnivore is a meat eater. That's where he eats flesh. That's what carne, carne means. So incarnation means enfleshment, embodiment. Entering into a human body and, and such. And that's what the, when we use the phrase, the incarnation of Jesus, that's what that means. Now, what we're looking at this morning is what's called the pre-incarnate glory. In other words, what was Jesus like, as it were, before he took on flesh? And I think it's important for us to look at this so that we see how dramatic this is. And that's why I actually have entitled the sermon, What He Gave Up. What he gave up, okay? So, for instance, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, we've seen this before. This, we saw this two weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this is how John begins his gospel. Jesus is the Word here. And he's saying that in the beginning, not the Word became... He says, in the beginning, and then he uses a past tense word, was God, was the word. In other words, if you get to the beginning, you go past the beginning of time and everything, the beginning of all things before the world was created and everything, the beginning, as it were, of reality as we know it, and you get there, here's somebody that's already been there billions and billions and billions and billions of years, the word was there. The word was the word. He was there. You, you, you would bump into him, as it were, uh, at that point. And the word was with God, and there's the idea of the Trinity, and the word was God. So here you have this being who was before time began, who was with God before time began in relationship with God, and who was actually himself God. Okay? So there's tons of theology right in that one verse. Then in verse 14, John goes on to say this. And the word became flesh. There's incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, so, so there was a time when the word wasn't flesh, and then there was a time when the word became flesh. Now, at the end of the book of John, Jesus prays this prayer that's recorded. It's an absolutely amazing prayer, John 17. And I'm going to, I'm going to put it on, they're going to put it on the screen now. And just listen to the first five verses of this, of this uh, prayer. Jesus says this. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, this is the hour of crucifixion, the hour of burial, the hour of resurrection. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may also glorify you. There's that beautiful thing that goes on between father and son of wanting to glorify each other and, and, and such. 
as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. That's what we looked at two weeks ago, this idea of the plan and the people that have been prepared for that. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what we looked at two weeks ago, this idea that he was sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. There's the plan being worked out that we looked at. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now, listen to this phrase. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. There is the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus. Glory of the word. He has not been enfleshed yet, but he is the word. And he's with God, and he has glory. And Jesus is saying, now that I've done all of this, took it on flesh, and I'm about to be crucified, and that, then put me back, raise me back up in glory, bring me back to glory again. And that's where he is right now. But let's go back. Let's look at this pre-incarnate glory. So Jesus, before he came to earth, before he was um, made a baby, as it were, before he was put in, 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 he entered into Mary's womb, before that time, he had this glory. He had this glory. And, and he, was, he was God. He was with God. He had the glory of God, and he was God. It's kind of summarized really well in Hebrews 1, 3, where it says this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power that he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. Now, it's all right there, but notice this. He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Can you leave that up for a few minutes, uh, that verse? Because I'm going to come back to it. Anyway, Jesus, so, so let's just start meditating on this for a little bit. Jesus, picture Jesus before he became flesh. Picture Jesus, he's the word, and he's glorious. Glory. What is glory, by the way? Glory is, think of, think of light. Think of, think of uh, but, it, but, but the word glory actually means heavy, weight. It means a heavy weight. It means an impression. But, but think of, but, it, but it's always referred to it with light. And, but don't think of like light, light, just kind of silly light. Think of majestic light. Think of splendor. Think of gold and, and jasper and emerald and, 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 and shining brightness and, and sunlight and, and, and lightning and, and this just this great, amazing, overwhelming, glorious, splendorous light. And all you can do is just start throwing adjectives around because it's just so amazing. He had that glory. He had that glory. Jesus was recognized as glorious. He was recognized and worshipped and beamed out and blazed out divine glory. That's who he was. He was, he was the, 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 the exact image of the Father. See it there? He was the brightness of the Father's glory. He and the Father are one. He's with the Father, and he is God all at the same time. And he has this glory. He's greater than all of the angels. Gabriel and all of the other angels, some of whom have very high rankings, archangels and principalities and powers and dominions and thrones and, and any name that can be named, Paul talks about this thing. All of those archangels and important angels and angels that rule over other angels and the whole hierarchy of, of majestic, divine, uh, majestic heavenly beings, they're all subservient to Jesus. They're all subservient to his glory. They worship him. They worship him. They love him. They adore him, the word, the son. They, they, they're honored to be in his presence. They delight to see him. They want to be near him, and he draws out of them worship just by the very greatness and splendor of his being and who he is. 
John tells us in, in John chapter 12 that, that what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the angels are surrounding him and singing holy, holy, holy. And John says that was Jesus. That was Jesus in his glory, pre-incarnate glory. And the angels are just swirling around him and they're worshiping him and they're in awe of him and they, they recognize his greatness, his grandeur, his his deity, his divine nature, who he is. That was the glory that Jesus had. That's who he was. And he had power. He had amazing power. He's God. He has power. 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 And the Bible says that all things that were created were created through him. The Father created everything through the word, through him. And nothing existed, John says, but that he didn't create. So all of those angels and all of those archangels, Jesus called them into existence. Jesus made them. He, he was the Father made them through the Son. The Father and the Son always work together. They're one. There's a oneness there that's hard to even describe. But they always work together. And so Jesus is he, he's creating these angels. He's creating all beings. He's creating galaxies. He's creating the world. By the way, I, I hope you realize God is always busy. Like, like people think, you know, well, you're God. You're kind of up there. Okay, well, just go ahead and worship me. And, yeah. Not what I do. No, 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 no. That's, that, that's crazy. That's not it at all. God is always at work. God is always moving. God is creating, and God is sustaining, and God is nurturing. Think about it. Well, look at the verse. Look at the verse again. It says this. It says, he was the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. And look at the next phrase. Upholding all things by the word of his power. God doesn't sit around. God's always doing stuff. Stars are shooting across the sky. Galaxies are happening now. Now that we've got these telescopes out there, and we're watching all kinds of stuff going on out there, and hope you're following it along, seeing all the pictures of the stuff that goes on out there in the universe and the things that are happening. And they got they got one recently of this star that's kind of sucking life out of another star, and they're moving around, and all these this kind of stuff going on. But then just think of what Jesus said about the Father. He was talking about the Father. He's always busy. He brings the sun. He brings the rain. He feeds the birds. He takes care of the flowers. He knows how many hairs upon your head. He takes care of you. He gives us good seasons. God is always at work. God is infinitely at work. God is moving every single cell, every single atom, upholding it all. And the word, Jesus, that was his pre-incarnate glory. He was upholding and upholding it all. That's why when, when the wind got out of control, Jesus says, stop. Waves, calm down. Boom, they had listened. They're used to that voice. They know the greatness and majesty of who this person is. And this is who Jesus was. This was his life before he was in Mary's womb. Let's add another layer to this. Jesus was in paradise. To be in the presence of God, to be in heaven, to be where God is, is called paradise. It's called that in Scripture. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, to the man hanging upon the, on the cross with him. It's paradise. Jesus lived in paradise. It was beautiful. Heaven is beautiful. If heaven's anything, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. God is there. We've been looking at this in the book of Revelation. These glowing colors, emerald and reds and, and rainbow colors and light. It's just beautiful. There's a splendor. A majesty. That's why when, when, when people try to describe it, John describes it in the book of Revelation, there's, the streets are lined with gold. There's, there's crystal clear. There's, there's jasper and emerald and sardis and china. There's all of this. There's gates that are whole gates made of pearl. And, 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 and it's this glowing bright light. And when God's glory breaks through, there's all this glow. And then as we see in the, in the Christmas story, you know the Christmas story, angels, the whole group of angels with all these shepherds, are, they're singing praises. There's this massive angelic choir singing praises because the incarnate word has come and they're singing praises. Heaven is always presented as a place of music and, and, and beauty and all is just, all is good, all is pure. It's just pure goodness. It's like you would breathe in goodness in, in the air. It's a world of love and a world of harmony and peace and closeness. And God is the center of it. And everybody else is, is around him. And in my father's house, Jesus said, are many mansions, many dwelling places. And you live there. And it's, it's a place of joy and a place of peace 
and a place of harmony and a place of goodwill and a place where Jesus was adored and loved and accepted and appreciated and valued. And, and it was just a delight to be in his presence. Jesus was also the sovereign of heaven. He was the sovereign Lord of heaven. Every single one of his commands was followed immediately, directly. Whatever he said, whatever he willed, wherever he sent, angel, Gabriel, go down to see Zechariah. Yes, sir, right now, on that. Go see Mary, on that, gone, there, doing it. Jesus was obeyed implicitly. He was obeyed unquestionably. Jesus was obeyed cheerfully. People thought it was an honor to get a, a command from God the Word and go and do what the Word and the Father wanted done. Jesus was treated with the utmost respect. Jesus, while he was in heaven as the pre-incarnate Word, had no needs, no wants, no hurts, no enemies, None of the stuff that makes life down here so irritating, so difficult, so disappointing, so frustrating. He had none of it. He was in paradise for billions upon billions upon trillions upon gazillions of years and years. Before time began, before there was no beginning, he was there. And he dwelt in this beaming glory in delight with the Father. And that, that's who Jesus was. And he gave it all up. He gave it all up. Turn with me to Philippians. This is Paul's point in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, it's such an amazing passage, but in the verse, first four verses, Paul is trying to tell the Philippians how they're supposed to treat each other as Christians, okay? And we're going to return to this because this is very important. Once you understand that that's the context, how we're supposed to treat one another as Christians, okay? And part of that context is he'll, is he'll say some very sweeping things. I'm going to apply that a little bit later. But then he, he bases this on Philippians. Here's how Christians are supposed to treat each other in their home, in their, in their, in their church, in, in the body of Christ. How we're supposed to treat one another. How we're supposed to treat people. He bases that all on Jesus. Okay? Because look at verse 5. He says this. Let this mind, or you could say, maybe even some of your Bibles might even translate this mindset. Let this mindset, this attitude, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 6. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now many of you know I don't like that translation. I think it's... It, 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 it's it's unnecessarily difficult. It doesn't need to be this difficult. There, some of your Bibles will say something like this, which I think is more accurate. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp after or seize. That's where this robbery idea comes from. Give me that. Give me that. Or, no, 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 no. You ain't taking this from me. You ain't taking this from me, Okay. That's what the verse says. Now, look again, look at the verse. Who being in the form of God. That's the Greek word morphe, morphe. It's a form. Where we get our word metamorphosis, which means to rise above form or to change form. So when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, there's a metamorphosis. The word morphe, the form has changed. Caterpillar is still, the, the, the butterfly is still the caterpillar, but the, but the form from caterpillar to butterfly has changed. It's the word that's used in Jesus' transfiguration. See, Jesus, Jesus, during the transfiguration, he, he metamorphosizes. His form changes back to his pre-incarnate glory form. And then he starts to shine. And the disciples, they are talking to him, looking at his face. And then all of a sudden, they can't look at his face because it's shining as bright as the sun. His clothing is glowing. His hair is glowing. And they're once again on the ground, burying their eyes, trying not to go blind, and, and feeling that the power of the glory and the majesty, he metamorphosized back to his pre-incarnate glory. And here, the word form, morphe means form. And so notice this. He, being in the morphe, the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp after at any cost. Didn't say, no, 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 I'm not losing this. No, no, I'm, this is my, no, I'm not, no, I'm not giving this up. No, 
I'm equal with God, and you will treat me like that, and I will live like that. I am sitting on this throne. I am being worshipped by these angels. I am being listened to explicitly. I am having all of the prerogatives, all of the blessing, all of the glory of heaven. This is mine. It's mine. It's mine by right. This is who I am. I am equal with God. I am with the Father. And, 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 and not only with God, I am God. I am equal. I am not giving this up. I am not giving this up. Paul is saying that's not what he did, okay? Look at this, verse 6. Who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. I kind of like that translation, but I think it could be better. It almost is better to say, and, and, and translators kind of shy away from this because then false theologians have taken and run with it, but it really means he's made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of all of that glory. He emptied himself of all of that privilege. He got rid of it all. He didn't hold on to it. He gave it all up. And then look at verse 7. Taking the morphe, the form of a bondservant. And I don't even like that translation. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I, I, when they t try to tone this down, bondservant, the word's doulos. It's a slave. It's a servant. Come on. Let's be real. And coming in the likeness of men. So notice this, he trades the form of God for the form of a servant, and that means he first of all takes the form of a man. He takes on humanity, okay? He empties himself, what Paul is saying. He gave, him, he gave up all of his rights. He gave up all of his privileges. He gave up all of his comforts. He gave up all of his glory. He gave up all that he had in heaven for all. He gave it all up, and he took on Humanity. So think of it this way. He's sitting there in all of his glory. You can't even look at it. He's just so glorious. He's there on his throne with his father in all of his glory. He's a king. He's a scepter. He's a crown. He's a robe. And he lays the scepter aside. All of his authority. I don't know if you saw the queen get buried recently in England, but they took her scepter and they went snap. They take her stepper off of her crown, off of her casket, and they snapped it, and then they laid it back on it. And that meant you no longer have rulership. You are no longer king. And that's what Jesus did in one sense. He took that scepter, he put it aside. He took the crown off of his head, and he set it aside for a time. And he took his royal robe off of him, and he set it aside. In royalty, then, they had rings, signet rings. And actually, we're going to look at that tonight with the mark of God. There's, there's part of that having to do with the mark of God. He took that signet ring aside. And I picture at this moment, it is dead silence in heaven. The angels don't even know what's happening here. What is going on? And he walks down from the dais, and the angels begin to just separate from him as he's walking through this crowd of angels. And all of a sudden, poof, the word is no longer there. Where is he? He's this little bundle of cells in Mary's uterus. He gave it all up for that. That's where he is right now. He's there. He's in Mary's uterus. And he will go through ordinary, normal growth, backbone, heart begins to beat, eyeballs come. You've seen pictures of baby fetal development. That begins to take place to the word who was with God and who was God. She goes into labor. He comes through a birth canal. He comes out with an umbilical cord attached to Mary. He comes out and he has he he, he is he's, he's, he's gooey and, and ooey and um, that's my professional way of saying because I've seen it eleven times. Um, that he's, 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 his hair is all matted down to the side and they're quickly cleaning him off. It's weird because he's in a barn. It's it's dark and cold and and smells of animal and hay. He's cleaned all up and he's laying there and he's super super vulnerable. He's super vulnerable. He's just, it's hard to describe how far he has come 
from the glory, the pre-incarnate glory, because now he's incarnate. And he's lying there, and he's swaddled all up tight, and he can do nothing for himself. If he, if he gets tired, I mean, if he gets hungry, he, he just calls out. He just cries out that he's hungry. She or Joseph or Mary have to pick him up. She has to feed him at her breast. He has to get milk from her in order to stay alive. If, 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 he, if he wets himself and he has that uncomfortable feeling of being wet. You know how it is when you're in a bathing suit too long? It's like, hey, you know, it's a bathing suit. Well, when you're a kid, you can't say, hey, get me out of this diaper. Hey, guys, I, I'm done. This no, you, you wait. You get there until you're red, sometimes chafed, and sometimes uncomfortable. And then you start crying out and say, well, he's either hungry or he's wet. Let's check it out. And, uh, and, and he was so vulnerable that that's, that's what he needed somebody to change him. He, he, was, he would get hungry and he would need nutrients or he would die. He could even die. Like, when he was pre-incarnate, he couldn't die. He could even die now. He has a human body. He has nerves. He has blood vessels. He has the ability to feel pain. He, he has to maintain this body. He knows discomfort now. He knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it means to be thirsty. He knows what it means to be sweaty and grimy. He knows what it means to have bugs bite. He knows what it means to have the sun glow down on him and burn his skin or dry out his skin in the hot Palestinian sun while he's working. He knows what it means to be all of the same things that we go through, wanting to, I just need to lay down. I'm so tired. He never felt that before in his life. He never knew what that was. He took that on. He gave up all of the glory, the absolute eternal power and majesty, and dignity, which is life itself. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. He, he, he takes on human. He becomes human, and, he, and he's limited in those ways. And he has all of the trials of a human being. People let him down. People lie about him. People dishonor him. People walk away from him. People question him. People laugh at him. The angels never did that. But he took it all on. He gave up all of that prerogative. They called Jesus illegitimate. We weren't born out of wedlock, they say in John 6. They, they say that G, they, they laughed at Jesus. They, they said that he was demon-possessed. They said that Satan actually possessed him. They said that he was a deceiver and a liar, and his teaching was all false, and he was sending people, he was teaching falsely about God, and he was sending people to hell. They said that he was a Samaritan. They used, they used an ethnic slur at him. Do we not say that you are a demon-possessed and a Samaritan, they say, in John 8? Jesus was misunderstood. He was lonely. He was, he, was, he was misquoted. And then, of course, we went through it all just about a month ago. He was arrested. He was spit upon. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was whipped and lashed. He was beaten up. He was laid upon a cross. He had spikes driven through his hands and his feet. He was hung up there to die. He took all of that on. He gave up all of this other stuff. And, and, and understand this, dear friends. Put yourself in a situation. Try to, try to understand the situation. What he gave up. What he gave up. What he walked away from. What he took on when he became a baby. In 1936, King Edward VIII abdicated the throne of England. He abdicated it. And you can go on today on his Wikipedia page and you can look at, and the actual letter of abdication is right there, signed by him. And it says, abdicate. From this moment on, I will no longer be king. I give up all of my prerogatives, all of my titles, all of my this, all of my wealth. He gave it all up. He gave everything up. Edward VIII gave it all up because he wanted to marry this woman and she had been divorced twice. And he wasn't allowed to do that as he was king. And so he gave it all up for her in 1936. And just, to, just for me reading that and seeing that that moment when he wrote that and he abdicated that, at that point he was one of the wealthiest men in the world and he, became, he literally became a welfare case then for the, the British government. After that, he gave it all up. He gave it all up. That's what Jesus did. If a billionaire were to give up all of his money, all of his mansions, all of his cars, all of his condos, all of his vacation homes, his yacht, he would give it all up, give it all up, and go and live in a poverty situation, in a dangerous situation. That's not even, that isn't even compared with what Jesus did. That's why Paul says in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he says, who being rich, 
made himself poor that through his poverty he might make us rich. This is what Jesus did. He gave it all up. He didn't say, no, I want this. No, this is mine. No, this is my right. I am God. He didn't say, I need to think about me. I need to think about my recognition, my power, my glory, my rights. I need to hold tight to my privileges. I need to hold tight to my comforts and my happiness. No, 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 no. I love my comforts. No, I love my ease. No, I love my wealth. No, I love the personal pleasure that I get from all of these things. And the No, I love the recognition. No, I love the adoration. No, I love my status. No, I love the security that this wealth gives me. No, I love my identity. I can't see myself apart from the identity of being this rich, wealthy, glorious center of all of heaven and earth. He didn't do that. He gave it all up. Why? Why? He gave it all up in order to work out the Father's plan. He gave it all up in order to save his people. He gave it all up for me and you. And that's why when the angel comes to Joseph in the book of Matthew, he tells Joseph this in Matthew 121. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to this. For he will save his people from their sins. He gave it all up for you. So that your sins would be forgiven. He gave it all up because he loved me and you more than he loved his identity, his glory, his rights, his ease, his privilege, the paradise of heaven. He gave it all up for us. See, he was more concerned about others than he was about himself. Now look at Paul. Look at what Paul does in the book of Philippians. Paul is trying to get the Philippians. He wants the Philippians to get along with one another. He wants them to treat each other as Christians ought to treat each other. And he says this. Look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same mindset as it were, having the same love, be, being of one accord, of one mind. I want you to just, I want you to be totally unified. Then look at verse 3. Do nothing, not one thing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything to get ahead and make yourself great. And don't do anything. The vain conceit here, I mean the conceit here word is actually means empty glory. Empty glory. Or anything to, to, to puff you up and make you more important than other people. But notice what he says. But in lowliness of mind, humility, genuine humility, let each esteem others better than himself. Put the needs and concerns and well-being of others before yourself, Paul says. And then he says this. Let each of you, verse 4, look out not only for his own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And then he tells us why he's going to ask us to do all this. Because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus was other-oriented. When the Father said, leave all of this glory and go and be born in a barn and then take on a human body and then die on the cross and be nailed and I'll pour out my wrath upon you and all of their sins will be upon you then and you will bear their sins. I want you. And Jesus said, I'm, I'm ready, let's go. Jesus said, no, are you? no. I can't believe you asked me that. No, no. He thought about us. He thought about our lost condition. He thought about our needs. He thought about that. And he put that way above his interest. These filthy, degraded, depraved, rotten sinners that are mine. These ones my father gave me. I'm going. I'm going. I'll give up anything for them. And I'll die upon the cross for them. And that's who he was. That was just who he was. He taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. He taught that greatness was being a servant. The greatest among you is the one who is the servant, the servant of all. That's what he taught. He taught, he actually washed his disciples' feet. He took their stinking, uh, dusty feet into his hands 
Every single one of them, 24 feet. He washed all of these feet. There were these 12 disciples. He washed both of their feet. And he washed their feet with water. And then he dried it with a towel around them. And then he went to the next one. And then he went to the next one. And he said, by the way, the reason I did this, I want to show you, this is how we live. This is who we are. This is who God the Father is, who I am. This is why I'm here. This is why I left it all. Because we're, our mindset, this divine mindset, is a mindset that wants to seek and save the lost, that comes after the lost, to, to, to be reconciling them to God, to save them. That's what it is. That's what we're to be about. And that's why husbands are supposed to love their wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself. That's why wives are supposed to love their husbands. That's why parents are supposed to love their children. That's why we're supposed to love each other. They have to be more concerned about others than we are about ourselves. That's why we're not supposed to chase after title. This is why we're not supposed to chase after privilege. This isn't why we're not supposed to chase after a name for ourselves. This isn't why we're not supposed to puff ourselves up. We're supposed to be keyed in to those around us. We're supposed to take their concerns as more important than ours. We're supposed to esteem them better than ourselves. Why? Because this is what it means to be Christ-like. This is what it means to be like God. This is the nature of who God is. This is the nature of the entire reality that God has created. This is what God is doing. And you know what the world says? This is stupid. And increasingly the world is saying this. This is stupid. That, what you just said, Todd, is stupid. No, 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 no. I ain't in. No, it's my career. That's what's important. And everything else is second to that. My comfort is what's important. Everything else is second to that. My success. My pile of money. My pleasures. My autonomy. My freedom, my identity, me. And this is why increasingly in this generation, people aren't getting married. <laughs> I ain't taking somebody else on. No, no, no. Not unless they sign up to worship me because I worship me. You better worship me. And if you worship me, I'll be married to you then. But then when you stop worshiping me and you start having demands, forget it. That's why people aren't having children. This is why people aren't taking responsibility. This is why people are, are, are not letting anybody get in the way of them, their self-fulfillment, their autonomy, their happiness, their fun. And we're in this environment. We breathe it. It's like cigarette smoke on you. We smell it. We got it all over us, and we, don't, we get used to it. But this is what Jesus is. And this is what we need to reorient ourselves to be. I'll give you another heads up. The world thinks we're stupid. God actually thinks the world's stupid. I know it's a harsh word, so I'll use the Bible word. God thinks the world's foolish. The man who builds the bigger barns, bigger barns. I'm rich, I'm rich, I got it all, I got it all. All my life is set. And he dies that night. God says, you fool. You were rich in the things of the world, but you're poor in the things of God. Jesus said, what, what good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? You see, dear friends, if you make the self, Self-fulfillment, self-happiness, careerism, my identity, my identity with my career, my identity with my money, my identity with my happiness. You make that your life. That God will destroy you. That's why God says it's foolish. I'm going to put on the screen a quote. Listen to this quote. It's from C.S. Lewis. He says this. I'm sorry. Can you guys even read that? Huh? Okay, I'm sorry. That's a little bit small. This should have been broken up into several screens. But let, let, I'll read it. C.S. Lewis said this, There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. And he's, he's encouraging people that well, you need to have others in your life that you serve and not just serve yourself. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Which basically is what the world tells us to do these days. But in that casket, Lewis goes on to write, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Dear ones, don't let the world teach you the wrong thing. But I want to conclude by just saying a word about this. This Jesus who gave up everything for you, gave it all up for you, and died on the cross for you, this is a Jesus you can trust. You can trust him. He has your best interest at heart. Life may not be going the way you think it should be going, and there may be disappointments that God sovereignly has allowed in your life, there may be challenges, there may be sickness, there may be loss, there may be this. God, God's doing things and you don't understand that all the time. But this Jesus who would do all of this and give all of this up for you, he's somebody you can trust. You can trust him. He was willing to sacrifice. In one sense, and don't, don't get me wrong here, but j just ride with me here for a little bit. In one sense, Jesus is making it about you. In one sense, he's doing that because that's who he is. And he knows that by overwhelming you with this selfless love of him, and you become the recipient of this, and you realize you have a Savior that loves you so much, that has given so much for you, that has sacrificed himself for you, that that actually is going to have one of the side effects is to free you from self-love. And help you to love him, trust him, and love others around you instead of grasping for me, 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 me. Do you live a life of trusting Jesus? It's a life of joy. It's a life of peace. It's a life that everything's okay. Because guess where Jesus is now? <laughs> He's right back there. The Father then makes his name above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue will profess that he is Lord. The Father, he, Jesus gave everything to the Father, and the Father, because they're so self-giving of giving to others, the Father gave everything back to Jesus, and he's there now. And that means that the one who left it all for you and died for you is now in control of everything? Wow, we should be happy. We should be carefree. We should have joy. We should have peace. We should be light as little children. We should be happy as little children. We are little children. We're God's children. And he loves us so much. Oh, that you know this Savior. Oh, that he is your Savior. Oh, that you trust him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know that the angels are worshiping you even now. Gabriel is excited to be in your presence, ready for your, your every command. We know that you are exalted. You are high and lifted up. And you still have the DNA of Mary. You're an exalted, glorified human being as well. You're the king of all kings. You're the Lord of all lords. You're the glory of heaven. You're the delight of your Father. You are God. And you are our Savior who came to be a baby for us, who gave up everything for us. You are a self-giving, self-sacrificing, feet-washing, loving, low, loving the lowly Savior. And little old nobodies, nothings, sinful people like us, you deeply love. And you weren't satisfied until you died on the cross for our sins, until our salvation was secure and we're safely in your love. We praise you. We thank you. And this Christmas season, we pray that you will help us to keep looking at that baby and saying, my, what you have done, what you gave up for us. Thank you. Thank you. We praise you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.